0: In this uh, short series of lectures, which uh, very suitably continues from the development of the eschatology of victory from Adam through the Afrikaners today, uh, we would like to trace the earthly fulfillment of Bible prophecy in our own time, especially what, if anything, the Word of God seems to indicate might happen during this last quarter of our twentieth century and possibly within the general time frame of the French Revolution to approximately two thousand three hundred A.D. wrote the great Bible commentator Adam Clark in eighteen twenty nine quote the ancient Jews believed that God would renew the earth at the end of 7,000 years. This general supposition they founded on Isaiah 65 verse 17. The world has now lasted nearly 6,000 years. Its duration has been divided into three grand periods, each comprising 2,000 years. There have been 2,000 years from the creation without any written revelation from God. There have been 2,000 years under the law where there has been been a written revelation, and now 1,829 years have passed, that is up to the time that the post-millennialist Adam Clark wrote these words, since the true epoch of the nativity of our blessed Lord. This epoch is called the Gospel or Christian Dispensation, which is now within 171 years of closing its 2,000 years. A very ancient tradition has predicted its termination at the close of that period in AD 2000, closed by a new period without terminating limits. For these periods have been supposed. To have their types in the six days' work of creation and the seventh day called Sabbath or rest. As we introduce this general subject of uh, the prophetic fulfillment of certain biblical predictions uh, in our own day and age, ranging from the French Revolution, 1789 through some time after AD 2000, I'd like to quote, secondly, the famous American songwriter Juliet Ward Howe. Now, it's not often appreciated that this woman was indeed raised in a godly Protestant Calvinistic home. She was steeped in New England Puritan traditions, and in spite of her later meanderings away from that tradition, she continued to operate within the basic framework of Puritan thought, unfortunately misapplying the uh, Messiah to the Yankee armies and misapplying the serpent that was to be crushed to the Confederate armies. Nevertheless, about halfway through the 19th century, she sensed something of the inevitability of the expected triumph of Christianity, as she understood it, over the forces of darkness, within the course of human history. In her renowned battle hymn of the Republic, she wrote the following unforgettable words. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I have read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. As ye deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero, born of woman, crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. And then, in the latter half of our own 20th century, the famous Neo-Puritan writer, Arthur W. Pink, expressed the same general expectation. Wrote Pink, There is an important scripture in Hosea 6, verse 2. Quote, After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Unquote. For almost 2,000 years, two days with God, see Second Peter 3 verse 8, says Pink, Israel has been without a king, without a priest, without a home. But the second day is almost ended, and when the third day dawns, their renaissance shall come. Today, even communist theoreticians have tended to assume that our world will probably pass from socialism into the happier condition of future communism by about A.D. 2000 or shortly thereafter. This, communists believe, will perhaps occur at the 2017 A.D. centenary of the 1917 Red Takeover in Russia. Moreover... Even many modern Western thinkers of a secularistic persuasion, such as Oswald Spengler, H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley, George Orwell, Drucker, Stent, Cornell, Alvin Toffler, Karnan Weiner, and many others, have sensed the coming of a new age at, or round about, the end of this twentieth century. significantly. The Christian scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments, too, contain some allusions, at least, to this same general time frame in the history of our world. It may therefore be of profit to consider the possible importance of the end of the 20th century, or perhaps better, the period from the end of the 18th century. Uh, through the arrival of the 22nd century uh, A.D., according to Bible prophecy. On this important matter, let us then, in the words of Romans 4, verse 3, inquire What saith the Scripture? Now, many intricate series of numbers have been embedded into the very fabric of Scripture by the Holy Spirit Himself. This has been quite adequately proven, I believe by authorities as diverse as the celebrated uh, British dispensationalistic premillennialist theologian, Ethelbert W. Bullinger, on the one hand, and the great Russian mathematician, Dr. Ivan Panin, on the other hand. Indeed, biblical numbers sometimes also have predictive significance in respect of future events. This can be established from the Bible itself, especially from the books of Daniel and Revelation. And this can also be seen from any Christian Bible commentary, whether written from a classic dispensationalist, classic premillennialist, classic amillennialist, or classic postmillennialist perspective. The biblical descriptions regarding the time of fulfillment of future events in general and of Christ's second coming in particular, are clothed in mystery. Indeed, as is the very nature of predictions destined for yet future fulfillments, they cannot be pinpointed to hour and day or even to year and decade realizations. Nevertheless, when taken cumulatively, these various predictions do, I think, tend to suggest That something very significant in the unfolding of God's eternal counsel for this world of ours may well be just about to occur. For the scriptures do seem to indicate that something very important can be expected to take place toward the end of our 20th century or again between the French Revolution to about 2200 A.D in the general area of the end of this second millennium A.D. Certainly, all of the various Christian schools of prophecy are today aware of the gravity of the days in which we are presently living. The classic dispensationalists are expecting the rapture. The classic premillennialists are anticipating the great apostasy. The classic armillennialists are looking forward to Christ soon coming again in final judgment, and the classic post-millennialists patiently await and work for the exhaustion of the power of Antichrist, the completion of the evangelization of the world, and the expansion in much greater strength than heretofore of the already principially commenced kingdom of God here on earth only ultimately thereafter to be followed by Christ's second coming in final judgment. Though differing from one another as to the next event expected, all of these various Christian eschatologies in their modern representatives today are in remarkable general agreement with one another as to the approximate date concerned and as to the importance of the times in which we are presently living. Hence, all of them are agreed that something, whatever it is, something really momentous is probably about to happen round the close of our present age or round about the beginning of the next century. Now, we should never forget that even... uh, the very angels are ignorant of the day and hour of Christ's second coming. And we should also remember that it is not for man to attempt to set the month or the year or even the decade of future events which the Father hath established in his own power. Nevertheless, we have been commanded by Christ himself to discern the signs of the times of the happenings prior to his final coming and other events prior thereto and the time of some of these happenings can we believe be established roughly within a margin of a century or two either side of the event from a close study of the bible we should of course approach this matter with a necessary reserve in so doing however it is still quite legitimate, and indeed even necessary, to inquire what do the Christian scriptures teach about the relevance of the approximate time of the end of our 20th century. Are we really living at the end of an age? We would like now to make some remarks about what I shall call the day millennium and the day year Principles of biblical prediction. Now it's indeed remarkable that following hints in the Old and anticipating hints in the New Testament, many of the writers of the apocryphal and pseudepigraphical books, such as Ethiopic Enoch and Slavonic Enoch, believed that the Golden Age would commence around the end of the world's 6th millennium or about the end of our 20th century A.D. So too did the ancient Etruscans and the Zoroastrians. So too did the Talmud and the Kabbalah and many of the Jewish rabbis such as Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Elias, Rabbi Abraham Ben-Hiyah, Rabbi Don Isaac Abranavel. So, too, did most of the ancient church fathers, such as Barnabas and Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Hippolytus and Cyprian and Commodian and Victorinus and Lactantius and Eusebius and Ambrose and Augustine and Jerome and Anastasius. So, too, did many medieval scholars, such as the venerable Bede and Joachim Floris, and Pierre-Jean de Levy, and Ubertino of Casali, and Arnold of Villanova. The same position, in fact, was also taken by many famous Protestant theologians, such as Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Andreas Osiander, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Rogers, Archbishop Usher, William Strong, Samuel Lee, Thomas Burnett, Robert Fleming, Campegius Vitringay, Joseph Mead, Moses Loman, Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Newton, John Gill, John Brown of Haddington, Samuel Hopkins, The Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, George Stanley Faber, Robert Scott, Eliphailet Knott, Joseph Priestley, John Bacon, James Winthrop, Adam Clark, already referred to at the beginning of this lecture, John Henry Livingston. Edward Griffin, Joseph Emerson, Joshua Wilson, Alexander Campbell, Isaac Hinton, Jose de Rosas, Charles Buck, The Cottage Bible, William Jenks, Semich, Dexel, B. H. Carroll, and last and by no means least, Arthur W. Pink, also quoted. This list could be much lengthened, but from the above it can be seen that the widely held claim that A.D. 2000 may be prophetically important in terms of fulfilled biblical prediction is at least worthy of some careful investigation. Now up to and including Augustine, it was the almost universal belief of both the synagogue and the church that God who formed the earth in six divine working days and rested on his seventh had also told his image man to follow this pattern down throughout history until the very end of the world. The Bible teaches that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Hence it was easily concluded especially in the early church after calculating from the biblical genealogical tables that Adam was probably created around 4,000 B.C., that after man had labored for six days of 1,000 years each, that is, from approximately 4,000 B.C. through approximately A.D. 2000, that man would then enter into his earthly Sabbath rest. That would be man's thousand years long or millennial post-millennial seventh day Sabbath rest here on earth before the arrival thereafter of God's eighth day of never evening always morning the day of the Lord and only at the end of that seventh millennium on earth was the final judgment expected to take place now this we may perhaps call the day millennium principle of historical time. According to this principle, one divine millennial day would equal one human millennium of a thousand years. On the other hand, it is also clear that God's seventh day, which is still in progress, you'll notice in Genesis we never read and it was evening and morning, the seventh day. That's left open. And in Hebrews chapter 4, the implication seems to be that it's still open. As the greater Mark said, if the seventh day had ended, you would have expected God to have started creating new things uh, after that, on the eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh days, etc. So it would seem from Scripture that God's seventh day is still in progress and is equivalent to not just one, but at least seven human millenniums or seven thousand years. For God's own seventh day, unlike his first through his sixth days of the earth's formation week, has apparently not yet terminated. This day, the seventh day of God, is in fact coextensive with the past and present and future history of man here on earth until the arrival of God's eighth day. Consequently, man's earthly history would run for 7,000 years, and man's millennial Sabbath would consist of the last seventh of God's seventh day. As such, man's millennial Sabbath was expected to commence round about A.D. 2000, at least it was, during the times of the Old Testament Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, and the early church fathers. Indeed, even Calvin himself sometimes seems to have assumed something similar. But even before, and certainly after the time of Calvin, the above argument was also reinforced by a consideration of the sabbatical system of Israel. Before Calvin... The great medieval theologian, Nicholas de Cusa, stated that all time is unrolled in periods of seven, such as seven days, seven years, seven times seven years, which are forty-nine. Hence, the fiftieth year is after a wearisome revolution of time, a Sabbath-keeping in which all slavery ceases and returns to liberty the number of the faithful will be steadily increased and will be successively enlarged by the light of the doctrine until the 50th jubilee. Moreover, long after Calvin, the celebrated German scholar Zuckler remarked, The Bible begins in the book of Genesis with a seven and ends in the apocalypse with a series of sevens. With reference to this sacred number, all the legal mosaic festivals were ordered. Thus, the great festivals lasted seven days. The seventh day is a Sabbath. The seventh week, a Pentecost. The seventh year, a sabbatical year. The seventh sabbatical year, a Jubilee. The symbolic value of this number is to be sought for In the seven days during which creation arose from chaos, we are entitled to regard the seven as the signature of the Holy Spirit. Accordingly, every seventh day or Sabbath, every post-Paschal seventh week or Pentecost, every seventh month of trumpets and of atonement and of tabernacles, every seventh year or sabbatical year, Uh, the year after every seventh sabbatical year or jubilee, represents a condition of restful bliss. Now it is beyond dispute that God operated in this way during Old Testament times. Accordingly, coming to New Testament times, one might almost expect God's image man to Sabbath similarly during his seventh millennium, after humanly laboring for six millennial days, each of 1,000 years' duration. This thousand years long human millennial Sabbath would then represent the last seventh of God's great Sabbath day of rest. It would be coextensive with the last seventh of the 7,000 years long expected history of mankind here on this present earth. As the last seventh of God's seventh day, it would accordingly appear to be the last ninth of God's creation week. And, after its termination, it would then be followed by the 50th millennium, or the everlasting golden jubilee of the new creation. This would be the everlastingly recurring eighth or eternal day, the never evening and always morning or everlasting day of the Lord. All of the above again points up the significance of the millennial character of the approximate time of the year A.D. 2000. Of course, some such as Beckner uh, have pointed out that um, with the arrival of this last 49th, God may again multiply that by seven so that the post-millennial millennium uh, would then be deemed to be uh, of long duration. Some have even estimated at 360,000 years or 365,000 years prior to the second coming depending on whether one follows the Ethiopic calendar or our present uh, compromised lunar-solar ca- calendar uh, in the application and the outworking of this day-year theory. But I leave that open, but even if that should prove to be the case, and it may well be, it would just do nothing else but reinforce the essential, sabbatic, uh, essential septennial nature of cyclical time here on Earth, always going from sevens to multiples and multi-multiples of seven. Well, now proceeding from this last argument, some deem it to be highly significant that Matthew describes the Lord Jesus as having been born in the seventh seventh or the forty-ninth generation from Abraham, that the Creator sabbathed in Christ, the second Adam, as God's most perfect work, and that shortly after Christ's baptism the Savior inaugurated His prophetic ministry here on earth on the seventh day of the week, in the seventh month of the year, after the seventh seventh Sabbath year, or Jubilee. For it was then that Christ eschatologically and sabbatically announced, Quote, "...the Spirit of the Lord is resting upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor." He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof, to preach the acceptable jubilee year of the Lord. And Christ closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on Christ. And he began to say unto them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Uh, Incidentally, others point out that this apparently occurred 777 years after the founding of Rome, the fourth beast of Daniel, around 753 B.C. Urbs uh, Condita, uh, A.U.C. And this heathen Roman kingdom, as we shall see later in detail, was in principle to be destroyed by Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and heavenly, heavenly session. For that took place half a sabbatical year or some three and one-half years after the formal inauguration of Christ's prophetic ministry at his baptism. You see the parallel. Christ baptized in fulfillment of the uh, septennial prophecy just read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Half a week follows, three and a half years later, half of a seven, Christ is crucified, and then when the Jewish people do not repent, he, as it were, scoops his baptismally anointed Hebrew Christian people out of Jerusalem in AD 66 and a half and then he pours out his wrath in judgment exactly three and a half or half of a seven year period later under his anointed, not Cyrus this time but Titus and Vespasian's Roman armies uh, bringing down the curse of the covenant on those who have not repented. So then, um, we see that Christ. Uh, so then, we see that the heavenly session of the resurrected Messiah would last until the second coming of Christ at the end of man's seventh millennium, while all of these lesser multiples of seven were unfolding here on earth, and especially while his earthly people labor six days every week out of gratitude for Christ's resurrection from the dead uh, in fulfillment of his Sabbath, and we do that after resting on the first day, as in groups of days, seven by seven, we go through time, one week at a time, until we enter into our own everlasting Sabbath when we die, and until finally, the earth enters into its everlasting Sabbath after the calling of the last of God's elect. Now Christ came to earth to be baptized and to live and to die and to rise again in the very fullness of time. This occurred precisely as foretold in Daniel's sevenfold prophecy of the 490 years or the 70 weeks of years. Daniel had been informed by a divinely inspired angel in 538 B.C. that the 70 years of Israelitic exile in Babylon would be followed after a further space of time by a period seven times that long. And this, as pointed out in the 270 B.C., Alexandrine Septuagint Daniel, is a period of exactly four hundred and ninety years. This new period of four hundred and ninety years, as seven times that period of seventy years Babylonian captivity, was to run, quote, from the time of the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the time of Messiah the Prince, unquote. This 490 years represented a, uh, uh, represented uh, 10 jubilees. It was, said Daniel, a period of seven weeks and three score and two weeks of years, thus totaling uh, uh, thus totaling 69 weeks of years. Be followed by one final week of years. Thus, all added together, it totaled 70 weeks of years, or 490 years in all. The baptismally anointed Messiah the Prince, or Jesus Christ, we are told, would then be cut off or die in the middle of the 70th week of years, or 486 and a half years after the time from which this prophecy began to run. Daniel chapter 9, thus establishes what we shall call the day-year principle of prophetic time, each day in the prophecy being equivalent to one actual year in its fulfillment. Thus Daniel 9 verses 2 24 through 25, compare it with Genesis 1 verse 14, Genesis 5 verse 23, Genesis 29 uh, verses 18 through 30, Numbers 14 verse 34, and Ezekiel 4 verse 6. Just to deal with two of those, you will recall that before Jacob was entitled to spend his seven days long Honeymoon with his bride, he first needed to obligate himself to work for his father in law for seven years. Uh, One year's work for every day of the honeymoon. The day year theory, you see. And so, too, in respect of Numbers 14, verse 34, you recall that uh, when the spies came back uh, to Moses and the people with the reports of the excellence of the land of uh, Canaan uh, that the people grumbled and groused and the final disposition of the matter was uh, that um, God's people uh, would be in the desert for 40 years on account of beefing and bickering about the 40-day period involved. And so too in Ezekiel 4 verse 6 we find the fulfillment of prophecy there geared very specifically and mentioned quite explicitly in terms of one year fulfillment for every day of the period of test involved. Indeed, even the ancient rabbis applied this day-year principle of prediction to their interpretation of Daniel. Thus, Rabbi Jedua, Flavius Josephus, the Midrash Rabbah, the Talmud, and rabbis Akibar ben Joseph, Benjamin ben Nahawendi, Saadia ben Joseph, Solomon ben Jeho- Jeroham, Saul ben Maslia, Hakohen, Jepheth ben Halivi, Rashi Solomon ben Isaac, Abraham ben Hiyah, Abraham ben Ezra, Tobiah ben Eliezer, Tobiah ben Eliezer, uh, Isaac ben Judah Halivi, Moses Nachmanides, Baia ben Asher, Levi Gershonides, Menachem ben Aaron, ben Aaron, Simon ben Zima Duran, Don Isaac ben Abranavel, Abraham Sabah, Abraham Halivi ben Eliezer, Joseph ben David, Naphtali Hertz, Mordecai ben Judah, and Daniel ben Perahiah. There may have been others too, but those are some of those where I found this principle employed in the exegesis and the assessment, especially of the book of Daniel. And this rabbinical principle of interpretation is also found not only amongst the ancient Jews, but also uh, in the early church, Uh, among many of the uh, ancient thinkers. For example, uh, Tertullian, Clement Alexandrinus, Julius Africanus, Eusebius, Athanasius, Cyril, Theodoret, Polychronius, Ambrose, Augustine, Tychonius, Primasius, Andreas, Isidore of Seville, the Venerable Bede, uh, Theodosius, Miletinus, Andronicus, Prosper of Aquitaine, Ansbertus, Beringode, Joachim of Floris, Arnold of Villanova, Bruno of Segni, Artensis, Nicholas of Cusa, and many others. Indeed, later authorities uh, also did the same. There are a few allusions to this principle in John Calvin. We also find it developed in the thought of Franciscus Junius, who, as you probably know, worked copiously uh, on the uh, later editions of the Geneva footnotes of the Geneva Bible, and uh, also of course the great scholar edward bishop eliot and moses stuart uh as well as many many other thinkers but this principle of the year-day principle of the fulfillment of predictive prophecy uh can also be seen uh, that it fixes the time of the commencement of the Messiah's earthly prophetic ministry, as explained above in our previous point, and fixes it starting from the uh, terminus a quo in Daniel chapter uh, nine. It fixes the appearance of the Messiah and his incarnation and baptismal anointing of the Most Holy One at approximately around A.D. 30. That is empirically verifiable. For A.D. 30 is 69 weeks of years, or 483 years of 360 days, or 476 solar years of 365 days, after Daniel's prophecy of Artaxerxes' decree to build Jerusalem. Ezra 7, verse 1 Compare Nehemiah 2 verses 1 through 8 given in the year 445 B.C. Now Christ the Messiah's prophetic ministry then commenced at the end of Daniel's 69th and at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week of years around A.D. 30 when Jesus was messianically baptized or anointed at about thirty years of age. And that earthly ministry of the Messiah apparently terminated about three and a half years or half of one septennial week of years later, at the time of his crucifixion, when he was cut off sometime after the sixty-ninth week of years and in the midst of the 70th week of years around 33 A.D. Most interestingly, those Judeans who disbelieved in Jesus' three-and-a-half-year-long messianic ministry were themselves subjected to three-and-a-half-years messianic punishment at the hands of the Christ-sent Romans from A.D. 66 and a half through A.D. 70. Some 50 that is seven times seven plus one days after messiah's death the first fruits of the new testament church were presented to the Lord on the day of pentecost and from that time onward the new testament administration of the unchanging covenant of grace has unfolded down through the centuries it will continue to do so until the arrival of what many consider will be the fulfillment of the feast of the ingathering at the world harvest, which will endure through its jubilee at the world's renewal. That harvest already had its principal fulfillment at the above-mentioned sabbatical commencement of the prophetic ministry of Jesus himself. But this same Jesus will also give that harvest its final fulfillment in actuality in the yet future. Now this world harvest of Revelation chapter 14 marks the future occurrence of the return of Christ to the classic premillennialist. Uh, who deem it to be the time that Christ will return to set up his millennial reign. To the classic millennialist, Christ returns at the end of the final tribulation. To the classic postmillennialists, Christ returns at the end of the blessed earthly millennium. Yet, either immediately or remotely, Before the advent of this coming world harvest of Revelation chapter 14, there first elapses the prophetic period of 1,260 days mentioned in Revelation chapters 11 through 13. Twelve sixty days, or 42 months, or three and a half years. or time, times, and a half a time. As we shall see, this period of 1260 days corresponds to the clearly predictive period of a time and times and the dividing of time mentioned in both Daniel and in Revelation. Furthermore, it apparently also bears some relationship to the other predictive periods mentioned in Daniel, such as the 2300 evening mornings mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, as well as to the yet other predictive periods mentioned in Daniel 12, the 1290 days and the 1335 days. In all of these chapters there are several indications as we shall see, as to the approximate duration of this period, which runs for some time between the first advent of Jesus and the world harvest, however one construes that in relation to the millennium. For this period apparently falls somewhere between the church's spirit-sown first fruits of the day of Pentecost, and the law reaped last fruits of the coming feast of the ingathering. Moreover, these indications in Daniel and Revelation, as we shall see, all point to approximately A.D. 2000, sometime between the French Revolution and 2200 A.D., let us say, as a very significant date on the calendar of God's preordained history of the world. To summarize then, we set out, you will recall, in seeing that the great biblical commentator Adam Clark, post-millennialist, felt that it was significant that 2,000 years ran from Adam to Mount Sinai, from Mount Sinai approximately to the coming of Christ, and from the coming of Christ to what he deemed would be the beginning of the post-millennial millennium Round about A.D. 2000. We saw that uh, in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Julia Ward Howe seemed to be aware of the general drama of this rough time frame between the French Revolution and 2200 A.D., with 2000 A.D. as its midpoint uh, in uh, her mind, raised in strict Puritanism. We saw that Arthur W. Pink uh, seems to derive from Hosea 6 verse 2 uh, the idea of three days uh, each lasting 2,000 years of great messianic importance. We saw that secular writers be they communists such as Lenin and his followers or be they western secularists such as Spengler, Wells, Huxley, Orwell, Drux, Stent Cornell, Toffler, Kahn, and Wiener all seem to sense something of the gravity of the age in which we live. And then we took a look briefly at the uh, word of God to see whether any of this might perhaps be predicted. We have seen from the numerical research of Ethelbert Bullinger and the vastly different Russian mathematician, Ivan Panin, that the Bible consists of a whole system and cycles of sevens. Also, that all schools of modern eschatology, be they uh, dispensationalists, classic premillennialists, amillennialists, or postmillennialists, are expecting something dramatic to happen, even if only the collapse of our civilization or its rejuvenation in the time frame which we are living in. We then went to the Bible from the back of this, uh, from this background. And uh, we saw that while we do need to be very careful uh, in not laying down any uh, dates, particularly not our dates or even decade dates, that that which God has revealed has indeed been revealed for us and our children and is to be reflected upon to the boundary of God's revelation. We then looked at the day millennium and the day-year principles of prediction. And we were perhaps surprised to find that the idea of the day-millennium principle of prediction, that is, the significance of the year A.D. 2000, arguing from creation weeks parallel, uh, has been widely held not only in the Apocrypha and the pseudopigrapher, but in most of the early Church Fathers uh, by many, many medievalists uh, by many Protestant reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Osiander, Latimer, Rogers, Usher, Strong, Samuel Lee, and many others, including 17th century Dutch theologians, Jonathan Edwards here in the United States, many Scots, uh, and so on and so forth, right down to our present day. And we pointed out that that list could also be considerably lengthened. We then went into the position of Augustine on this matter, and then having disposed of the day-millennial principle, we took a look uh, at the day-year principle, and we saw that resting especially on the exegesis of Daniel 9, as approved not only by all schools of uh, Christian eschatologists, be they pre, or post-mill, but even as approved by Jewish rabbis, uh, it would indeed seem that one day in the prophecy's revelation is equivalent to one year as to its fulfillment. And we discovered the similar principle uh, in uh, Numbers 14, verse 34, Ezekiel 4, verse 6, and in uh, Jacob's marriage week, uh, Genesis 29, verses 18-18 through thirty. Uh, we then discovered that uh, the sabbatical system of Israel, multiples of seven, uh, constantly increases in ever widening circles, and seems to have been a definite key for the understanding of the whole of the Old Testament history of Revelation, and one would suspect also of the New Testament history of Revelation, and when we get to the book of Revelation itself we will see how this system of cycles of seven again reappears there in in terms of predictive prophecy, some of which is yet future as to its fulfillment. And then we finally uh, closed out this introductory discussion of the material by uh, drawing attention to the emergence of the Lord Jesus Christ... at his incarnation... in the very heart of history... in the fullness of the times... and that uh, he too operated in a sevenfold way... both at his first public preaching... the Spirit of the Lord is upon me... and he hath anointed me... and in terms of his baptismal anointing... and in terms of his death on Calvary... three and a half or half of seven years thereafter and in terms of the outpouring of his covenantal grace in removing his baptized Hebrew Christians from Jerusalem in A.D. 66 and a half, but in pouring out his covenantal septennial Sabbath wrath on the disobedient in A.D. 70. We have now, I believe, uh, laid the groundwork, uh, or some of the groundwork, necessary for uh, a penetrating interpretation of uh, the prophecies of Daniel, uh, to which we shall go in our following lecture.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.